Hello and welcome to the Coffee with a Recruiter podcast. I'm your host, Jose. First of all, apologies for the lack of episodes over the last few weeks. I've been quite busy at my full-time job, so I took a small break from podcasting. I feel refreshed and ready to post more content, so let's start with today's episode. Tech companies face numerous challenges when they need to grow really fast. What causes this fast growth? What risks are involved when companies need to hire quickly? And what can talent professionals, interviewers, and founders do to minimize these risks and grow effectively? Here to answer these questions is Brian Avey, a seasoned talent and people leader with experience growing startups and large companies in London and San Francisco. Welcome, Brian, to the Coffee with a Recruiter podcast. Before diving into the big sort of topics around growth and hiring, which is what we're going to be discussing in this episode and particularly fast growth, Brian, can you give us maybe a little intro to yourself and who you are and what you do? Yes, my name is Brian Evia, and I work with largely technology corporations on areas of change and growth. I've been in the field of HR since the mid-90s. I'm originally from San Francisco. I've got a humanities degree from Santa Clara University, and I started working in Silicon Valley really during the dot-com era as a retained executive recruiter. Recruiting is my first discipline, and I was with a wonderful firm in the Valley and we partnered with the portfolio companies of many of the Sand Hill Road VCs at the time, Sequoia, Kleiner Perkins, um, Mayfield, Benchmark, and the like, as well as working with large Silicon Valley technology corporations, National Semiconductor, Bay Networks, Sun Microsystems, Apple. I did a search for a very young uh, Netflix, just as they were getting started, which is pretty interesting. After uh, working in, in the services field, I went to become the first head of HR for two different startups, both um, growth stage and venture-backed. The first was a bootstrapped and then venture-backed provider of supply chain solutions, radio frequency identi- identification, if you're familiar with it, uh, which is a pretty interesting field. And then the second was a spin-out from Stanford University in static source code analysis, so that's software tools development. And at both of those companies, there was a lot of, lot of growth activity, a lot of hiring and opening new offices and setting up entities and working with different partners and um, product uh, raises and raising money and all those things that you would expect. Um, after the second company, I realized that 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 we had we had experienced a lot of growth that I think was somewhat unexpected in terms of the consequences of the growth. And I wanted to step back from all of the operational work that I've been focused on to have a better understanding of what was happening below the surface. So I I continued to consult for a couple of different companies while I received a master's degree in in organizational change from HEC in Paris and uh, Oxford here in England. I then went back to San Francisco. Uh, I did some more consulting work. I did big consulting for companies like uh, McKesson and Genentech and Sephora uh, before my wife and I moved to England in early 2014. My wife is English and we had always intended to to come home for her. And since uh, I've been in England, I've done a variety of things. I've worked with several different growth stage companies in, in HR leadership roles. I've also helped an organization called Astia, which is a global investment community 
dedicated to providing high growth women entrepreneurs and gender inclusive teams with access to capital, business expertise and leadership development. And I was involved in helping Astia raise its, uh, its initial fund as well as launching its angel network. And that $100 million fund is now uh, up and running. And I'm very pleased to still be associated with that group and, and that global community. Yeah, I mean, it definitely seems like you've seen talent and, and, and hiring from different perspectives from different companies and even different, different countries, right? Different regions. So it gives you probably the broadest, would you say, I mean, you, it, it does give you a very broad sort of look into how hiring can, can move forward in a company. Absolutely. I, the smallest company I worked with was six people and we ended up growing it to, to well over 200 uh, for several years running in Silicon Valley, I was hiring around 50 people a year uh, for in, in pretty resource constrained environments. They weren't throwing around a lot of cash to do that hiring. And then uh, in, in London, I've been doing the same hiring 30, 40, 50, 60 people a year for, for several years running. And I've seen, I would imagine the full range of early stage HR uh, activity and HR challenges from from some things that are, are I think terribly expected and and predictable, as well as uh, all of the all of the things that come up that you just really don't expect. Um, and then twice from from California, I've I've expanded into into different countries with different operating entities, and then twice from the UK, uh, I've worked with with setting up and and. Um, running the U.S. activity as well. So um, that's both in the U.K. and also in, in several European countries. So um, I'm, I'm pretty experienced in I'm pretty experienced in the desire for European companies to to be in America, and and I understand a lot of the 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 cultural and the, the translational challenges that that come with with working with Americans. Uh, and then I also understand how the U.S. U.S. companies really want to land in Europe and usually use the U.K. as a as a landing point, just because of the, the similarities in the in the law and some cultural things. But there really are a number of differences that I think American startups don't really anticipate. Just out of curiosity, what would those like? What would be the the key sort of surprises or unexpected factors to consider if a company, let's say. Let's take maybe a, a um, maybe a, an American company that wants to in, sure. expand into in you know into Europe or or starting in London or wherever. Let's say in the UK, what are some of the unexpected surprises, uh, mistakes, uh, things that you need to consider before before really moving forward? I think most American startups looking to expand into Europe don't recognize just how better Europeans are at wanting and working for work-life balance. I think that most American startups, especially early stage companies, especially serial entrepreneurs, uh, this is pretty much their life. And, and the, the company is what they focus on. And part of this is, is very American in the sense of um, America is very focused on the individual and very focused on, uh, especially a founder driving their vision and, and working to bring their vision to life and not letting much get in the way or, or be a distraction. And you know, some of these are, are really 
quite um, quite mundane differences, um, but just the fact that that most American companies um, don't put an emphasis on on what's called vacation in America, as opposed to to annual leave, and most Americans don't. Uh, they have two weeks of, of holiday and, and many of them don't even take that. And there's a real pressure, I think, to, um, to, have, to, to be present in, in U.S. companies and not take your holidays and not be out of the office. And of course, that's just not the way things work in the U.K. and in Europe. And, and people are, are rightfully quite protective of their, of their time off. And, um, and you know, that's a very small one. I think, although what that leads to, though, I mean, that's the, that's the visible difference. But I think the less visible difference is that most Americans have have most American entrepreneurs, technology entrepreneurs have massive ambitions and and they they project the 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 full scope of what they're trying to do as you know, the equivalent of going to Jupiter. And the Europeans don't quite see things that way, I think. I mean, these are very, very big statements, obviously, Jose. Um, but many Europeans have just have smaller ambitions. And some of that comes from the investor base and some of that comes from, from the entrepreneurs. And some of it comes from, um, I think, again, just this, this sense that, that this company is not my entire life and it's not my entire existence. Therefore, I don't necessarily need to try to be on a mission to Jupiter. So there are trade-offs with all of this. I, I don't think for a moment that some of the practices of Silicon Valley should be exported to other countries and other regions because there's a lot in Silicon Valley that works quite badly. However, if, if, if the ecosystem in the UK and in Europe talks about itself in very, very broad terms and very ambitious terms, I think it has to also recognize that, that there are trade-offs in, in wanting that level of ambition. And, that is a, a level of sacrifice and a level of drive and commitment that I think Americans might over-embrace. But I also think it's something that, that Europeans and, and, and people in Britain might under-embrace, if that makes sense. Yeah, there should be a, a balance there somewhere, you know, a middle ground that, that people maybe in the US and, and Europe can find in terms of maybe work-life balance or ambition or or just, um, I suppose, prioritizing work, or maybe just prioritizing your private life uh, a bit more. So yeah, it, it makes sense. What about maybe yeah. just a quick one, but the opposite, let's say, uh, and I suppose, I guess the opposite, like, let's say a UK company, uh, yeah. or a European company expanding into the US, they maybe get surprised by the amount of competition, maybe the the, the drive, the, the, the hours, the... Um, the amount of effort not sure maybe it's it's just the opposite let's say a uk company expanding into the us it's the opposite problem or how would you describe that i think it's some of that i think you 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 touched on some of the of the common issues i think that the i think that a, especially for british companies looking to expand in the us the, the us is obviously such a a huge commercial market and many startups over here will want to land and expand in the United States. And, uh, and they will do this for very legitimate reasons. <laughs> if they have a valuable uh, product to sell, they'll want to tap into that market. I think there is a, there's a, a, a quite a, a large expectation difference though in what needs to happen from a sales perspective with uh, among US technology salespeople versus European technology salespeople. And really what I mean by that is the 
a British startup, a London startup looking to expand and hire some people in the U.S. really needs to have a great understanding of how it's supposed to go to market in the U.S. And I don't mean it needs to have all of the answers. I just mean that because obviously hiring a U.S. sales leader, that individual is, is probably going to be tasked with filling in some of these gaps. But many many European startups don't put enough of the fundamentals into what needs to be in place before a sales force can be hired in the U.S. in order to make those salespeople successful and do it relatively quickly with a good degree of both some certainty and also some collaboration, but really with a, with a sense of urgency around figuring out the sales model and getting that into place as quickly as possible because Many qualified U.S. salespeople working for a European company that's expanding into the U.S. will will have a pretty short attention span if the sales process and the revenue mechanism and all of the different motions that have to actually work well in order to put money into the pocket of that salesperson. If those things aren't very well, fairly understood fairly quickly, that salesperson is just going to go to someone else because the, the level of competition and the, the, the sheer number of opportunities within technology startups in the United States is just much, much larger than most European entrepreneurs understand. So there's a, there's a, there's a pressure, obviously, to generate revenue quickly in the United States, but there should be an equal pressure on, on headquarters, on the European headquarters, to provide uh, enough clarity on the steps to getting that revenue for the salesperson and demonstrating that this is a company that, that will be able to provide that American salesperson the opportunities that, that, they, that they want to be able to make their commissions and make money they want. Because it's, it's no secret that Americans are quite money-driven and money-motivated. And I think technology salespeople are, are certainly at the forefront of that. And, um, and that's, not always, that's not always something that, that I think Europeans, um, Europeans consider enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes me think in a previous life or when I was just starting my recruitment career also when working in agency recruitment and, and at some point also having to hire sales professionals, I'm thinking, yeah. look, if you're working in a market and the sales cycles take forever, it takes months to complete something, then you're going to get bored pretty quickly, right? So, I mean, it makes yeah. perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. And it takes, I think if it you, takes forever you, to see your commission, you know I mean? Yeah. Exactly. And I think if you do this enough with, with, with a few companies expanding overseas, you'll have the experience of, of, of quite a significant turnover from the initial sales team. And this actually works in both directions, um, but, but especially trying to hire trying to hire some U.S. salespeople, uh, there, there can be some large attrition pretty, pretty fast and, and unexpectedly fast, I think. Um, if, if, again, if headquarters, if, if the home office isn't aware that, that, that there, there are two priorities, it's, it's obviously getting the revenue model to, to get the customer acquisition and, and actually make sales, but it's also proving that, that this is a profitable job for those American salespeople. And I just think that, the, that, that there's, a, there's a, a limited window of patience that a, an, American, an initial American sales force will have. Absolutely. Yeah, I fully agree. Now, now just, just to move into, into just a quick point that I wanted to discuss with yep. you, uh, Brian, um, before diving into the fast growth hiring stuff, 
uh, just wanted to briefly talk about leadership because obviously with your with your experience, you know, head of people, you know, going through your profile, you know, VP of people, um, uh, it takes, I suppose, a certain set of skills or or past experience to to reach that level. Uh, briefly, how would you outline that that progression you've had, and and what are sort of the key, you know, maybe top three, top four skills, abilities that that someone should consider if they really would like to progress in that direction? Leadership is a fascinating and and fantastic topic, and I think that um, I think especially for people within HR, it's it's incredibly important to be intentional about about one's own career progression, because it's pretty easy to stay within a, within a transactional role uh, within HR, because most companies see human resources or the people function as, uh, as a, transactional, <laughs> a transactional cost center. And so in order to, in order to, in order to think of, of the strategic value of HR, both as an individual and as a function, I think you have to do it pretty intentionally. So the, the, the decisions that I took around working towards positions of, of more, more authority and more responsibility usually came after a role that was, that, that was difficult where there were, were either missed expectations or missed opportunities or just real challenges. It's, it's, an, it's harder to learn in, in the sense that it's more personally painful to learn during difficult times, but it's much more effective uh, if, if you're open to the learning. And I've been very fortunate to have a number of, of excellent people within my my network um, as, as uh, you know, former managers or uh, advisors or mentors or coaches and, and people within um, different circles of organizational thinking to help influence the kinds of decisions that I made and and uh, and how I how I both look back on the choices from from previous roles but also worked to to plot the new courses of the new directions forward. So I would say that people looking to to focus on on their own, progression, I think have to, to start a little bit with the end in mind. And, and if, if someone has, has an aspiration to become a chief people officer somewhere, start understanding what that role actually entails and what that role is responsible for and, and pull back a bit to see how the things you're doing in, in your role right now actually connect up to a chief people officer, and, and some of this, of course, is just is, is a thought exercise. But see if you can expand on on today's responsibilities and today's activities, and 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 make the connection to what the larger strategic and the wider objectives actually are, because that will get you thinking about making better tactical decisions that are more in service and more supporting of the strategic mission and and of that that trajectory. And then I think, I think it's really important to understand that um, leadership is really for everyone. Leadership is an observable and a teachable and a learnable set of skills. And the greatest, uh, 
the greatest threat, I think, to leadership is that people don't recognize this. People think that, that it is still something that is, is for a specific kind of individual or a specific class of person or some certain profile and, and, and style, some sort of characteristic. Uh, but anybody can be a leader if they're, if they're willing to make the trade-offs and make the sacrifices. And I think everyone has a right to lead if they are if they're really doing sort of three things, if they have an understanding that, that they're doing it for the service of, of, a, of a broader purpose rather than their own self-interest, if they have a deep commitment to caring for the people they're responsible for, and also if they have a quiet acceptance of their own personalities, of their own, of their own um, strengths and weaknesses and, and, and human frailties. And the, uh, the best quote on leadership I know is from Warren Bennis, uh, who said that becoming a leader is uh, <laughs> becoming a leader is a process of becoming yourself. First and foremost, find out what it is you are about and be that. And that doesn't mean that that you that you have to become a super person. It means that you have to really understand that there's a lot of sacrifice in being responsible for others and being and having authority and having power. And if you want to be a leader, you need to become comfortable with that, comfortable with those trade-offs. It's a long answer for you, Jose. Sure, sure, sure. Perfectly fine. Well, it does it does come with its trade-offs. I mean, uh, not that I'm a leader, but from working with stakeholders or or VPs of people, um, at least from what I see, is that a lot of times some people prefer to regress back to an individual contributor role because they realize, oh, spending so much time in meetings with people, talking to others, convincing, um, mm. uh, in discussions, communicating, um, and then you're dealing not not with the work or let's say with with let's say if you're a VP of engineering, you're not dealing with the code, but we're, you're dealing yeah. with people's emotions, right? It's like you're you're yeah. dealing with, with individuals that will talk back, will will change their minds, will pre- present counter arguments. That that probably presents more stress during your your day than oh, just sourcing or just. I mean, yeah. I could you know sourcing's. I mean, sourcing's all right, you know. Whereas dealing with people, oh, that changes things a little bit. Yeah. I, so you, you're exactly right, and and this is why uh, this is why leadership isn't for everyone, <laughs> and and it, it's often it's a I mean often it's the most lonely job you can have, and and everything from from the most recognizable leader in the world. I mean, everything that's written about modern presidents of the United States emphasizes just how lonely it is and how isolating it is. And it's the same thing when you're a VP in an organization, because you're absolutely right. You're not actually delivering always the the, the kind of tangible things that you can put your arms around and say, here is my expertise. And, And it's going from point A to point B to point C. Leadership is much more ambiguous. And oftentimes it, it is around issues of, of, of just trying to um, just trying to keep things moving in the right direction. I mean, there's a there's a great quote from um, Dwight Eisenhower from the from the American general in World War II uh, around leadership as as persuasion and conciliation and education and patience. 
And that's not really <laughs> the prime time razzle dazzle that, that many people think of when they think of leadership. So I, I agree with you. I think it's not for everyone if, if they don't want it, but it is for more people than I think they might recognize. If you want to do the work and if you want to be involved in, in, and as you've said, a lot of it is very emotional, especially in HR. Most of, of, most of the senior HR work is around individual issues with, with colleagues, with peers, with a CEO, and it's around them. It's around them personally, and it becomes um, more intervention work, certainly, than delivering on a recruiting plan, which is the, the planning and the sourcing and the attracting and the closing and all that other stuff. So it's not for everybody, but I think it's probably for more people than, than, than they might realize. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, look, and if, if someone's, let's say, if there's any listeners out there and let's say you're progressing into that role or you're currently into that leadership role, well, maybe yep. this is a good segue into, into the next topic, but oftentimes you need to, well, you might be in a certain situation where your company needs to hire very rapidly and that presents all kinds of challenges that we'll unpack in the in this discussion. So I wanted to yes. to to start talking about let's say something you mentioned to me which is rapid hiring, right? And, yeah. and let's say a company is is growing quickly and they need to hire a lot of people. Can you maybe outline first what you mean by by rapid hiring and and you mentioned also two levels, right? But can you maybe give us an intro to that? Yes, I think startup growth happens on two levels and the first is around activity growth and that's very visible very tangible activity around hiring lots of new people around fundraising around building and shipping new products around expanding markets uh, new customers generating revenue all of those things that that you can see and all of the things that consume really a lot of our of our a lot of the the growth cycles a lot of that time and and energy however the less visible and and sometimes the intangible is really what i call intentional growth and these are all of the organizational consequences and the trade-offs of the visible activity growth and that means what happens when you throw a number of new people into a young organization that doesn't have a history or much structure or much process or perhaps an understanding of how it's supposed to go to market. What does that do for individual role clarity? What does that do for an individual's sense of being connected to the company? How, how effectively are teams expanding if they don't really have a lot of structure? If there's a lack of, of foundation within the competency of the managers and leaders, what are the consequences of that? How visible are they? How active is the company looking to understand some of these, these growth stresses and points of tension? Or how often does all of the, the visible activity simply overwhelm everyone's attention span and take, all, take away all of the oxygen to look at some of these underlying issues? In the course of, of my career, I've been involved both as a consultant and also as an operator in several organizations where all of the visible activity just took over. And, and I can think of several examples and one specifically where, where CEO 
said that the company had grown quite rapidly to about 450 people. And, and he said, you know, I've realized that there are about 200 people here and they're just mishires. And it doesn't mean that they're bad people. And it doesn't mean that, that even the company necessarily made a mistake in quotes in hiring them. It just meant that things weren't structured properly to actually do something productive and useful and rewarding for a couple of hundred people because the growth priorities were the thing that, that drove all of the activity. And being able to say, ah, look how, fit, how fast we're growing. We're growing 100% year on year in terms of headcount and, and revenue rather than understanding what the, the, the consequences of all that actually were going to be without some intentional understanding of, okay, how is this phase right now? How are we, are we structured in this current phase? And what's the next phase? And if we get to that well enough, what is that gonna allow us to do? And how does that allow us over the course of several phases to, to reach our, our much, much higher and, and broader goal? So there are two levels, and and I think most startups really don't pay much attention uh, pay much attention to intentional growth, partly because they have tremendous pressure from investors and from from all of the daily activity, partly because it's a bit of a distraction, because intentional growth is fundamentally messy, and and it really does speak to the responsibilities of of caring for the well being of other people, and a lot of founders and leaders either don't recognize or don't want or don't accept this power that they have. And so it's pretty convenient to focus on all of the hurly-burly of the growth activity and not look inward first and figure out how some of these, these messier, more ambiguous things that will eventually become much more important in, in the future of the organization then they, they may not pay attention to how it's, it all comes together so then one morning you wake up and you have you know, X number of new people and, and new markets and new activity, and it's not all put together very well. And really that's what organizational debt is. It's a lack of understanding the, the choices and having intentional choices so that a, a period of time progresses and all of a sudden you open up this box of the company and you see a mess and it's just the result of, of a series of decisions and, and unintentional choices. I can I can definitely relate to that. I mean, when you when you mentioned about things like hiring people or that you were in a company that hired about two hundred people that the founder felt were mishired, uh, yeah. it makes me think on on a few occasions where uh, you know you're working at a company and. All of a sudden, you as as the recruiter or people person, and before you know it, um, you realize, oh, we're apparently we're midway into interview processes for a VP of of sales or yep. something like that, and you're like, wait, really? Wait, when did that happen? And yeah. and then it's and then people are being pulled into interviews, and they don't know who they're interviewing, or what the interview process is. You're just getting invites. Um, so I guess it's just hiring on a whim also. It's, it's almost like just if you if you see that, oh, uh, there's there's maybe hiring taking place based on impulse and reflexes as opposed to being strategic and and there was a plan and there was some strategy involved and thinking to to know what this person needs to be doing this this new hire, then maybe that's maybe one of the warning signs, right? 
It is, and I think that the again, so much of this is is external pressure that that a founder receives uh, when they receive professional investment. When when there's venture capital involved, um, that changes that changes the internal character of a company. It changes the dynamic. It changes the agenda. And most well. Yes, most first-time founders don't realize just how how much their their organization will change, how much their company will change when they receive professional venture, because it 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 you know, once that money is in the bank, once once that investment has been made, the the outcome again, depending on the on the the, the level of investment and and the strength of the investors and things. But once you become a venture-backed company, you're really getting on the bus of professional venture, and venture always wins. And there, there are are very, very, very clear and and, and repeatable signs of just how how that pressure changes what's happening within a company. And, and you, can, you can see it in terms of, of different strategic choices and different decisions. You can see it in who is being hired, who, who's being hired after venture is raised as opposed to before. Anecdotally, you can talk to people, if you can talk to your network and ask how a founder or the founding team changed from, from pre-venture to, to the post-venture time. And there's just there's tremendous pressure to to um, to demonstrate things that founders may not always believe in, but investors do, and so uh, a lot of the I think a lot of the the growth um, is really driven by that power dynamic. And when I started in the dot com era, and and really all the way up through the the funding post the, the financial crisis. The, the metrics for growth for a software company, an e-commerce company was really 100% year on year headcount and revenue growth. And a few years ago, somebody decided that it should be 200%. And I have no idea why this happened, except professional venture wants to see this kind of growth because what they're trying to do is maximize their portfolio valuation, not necessarily maximize the efficiency or the optimization or the health of any individual company within that portfolio. So there are all these different tensions that are, that are playing out in, in growth stage companies. And many people don't get close enough to these problems because they stay at the leadership level, they stay at the board level, they're sometimes just between a founder or founders and the board and, and, and not enough people are involved in, in trying to chart a course through this. Um, but these are a lot of the things that are, that are, are, are going on uh, behind the scenes. Sure, I believe, you, and I believe you answered one of my follow-up questions, which is sort of what what sort of motivates companies to start growing that quickly, which is mainly the venture capital side of things and yep. and certain requirements that that these these groups have. Um, moving more into the the actual sort of how to plan that growth or yep. or the systems around that. Um, curious to know, Brian. I mean, from your perspective, what what are kind of maybe the first Let's say three things that uh, that maybe a VP of people, or maybe it's more a case of the you know stakeholders, leadership planning this, or yep. or everyone involved. But what are the first three sort of things you would say that need to happen that you would need to do to make sure that yep. this growth is healthy, sustainable, effective, and not like improvised or or on a whim, right? 
Yes, well, I think there's always going to be some level of improvisation, and I think it's a question of whether you want to have have um, rampant chaos or rampant improvisation or just just uh, uh, targeted bits of, of of thinking on the fly here. I would encourage people to to look at at HR at, in, in a progressive sense. And I think a progressive people capability really has three levels and three, three levels of expertise. And at the foundation, there's a core expertise, um, then there's the growth expertise, and then really there's expertise around meaning. And at the core level, that's really the, the, the day-to-day people ops. How does a, how does a company um, deliver the everyday necessities so that Everyone associated with the company has some faith in in the competency of the company, and that's you know, the daily necessities of things like employment structures and policies and procedures and um, compensation and benefits and all of the compliance and legal and and audit stuff that you need to have. And I think when you build that core people ops expertise with care and precision, then all of the people ops systems will be able to reveal the data and the insights and the activity that can lead to new behaviors that ultimately everybody wants. Everybody likes to have data that will point to new ways of doing things, but there's there's always gonna be a gulf, a gap between the data and new behavior. But PeopleOps needs to first provide the data in order to get to the new behavior. And I think ultimately it's really important to create the a sustainable people ops organization because that's really the key to an employer brand, which is the relationship between the company and all of its people. So if you do this well at, at the foundation, you can then look at the next level, which is around growth. And growth are all of the things that you're looking to do to build competitive, competitive advantage by investing and in, in people and developing people. So that's employee experience recruiting and onboarding and learning and performance and organizational effectiveness and career progression and all of the things that will connect people to their relationship with the company. And it's important to remember that what you're trying to do here as you're growing is you're growing relationships. You're growing relationships between each individual and their job and then that job and the company and teams together and teams with their managers and and managers to leaders and and so on. This is a relationship function. It's not not, um, uh, abstract. This is about human relationships. And I think when when all of these these growth and talent activities work well, they, they verify and they validate what the company actually values. They, all of the growth activities say, ah, this is what we believe in. And we demonstrate how we believe in these things by our relationship with, 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 everyone, with everyone in the company. So ultimately, talent and growth is around selecting and aligning and growing people. And, and that's really going to get to the heart of, of teamwork. And finally, at the top, and this is the really exciting thing, is the, the expertise around meaning. And that's culture and engagement. And that's how people see themselves within this, this mosaic of visible and invisible factors within the company. And this is where you get to issues of trust and, uh, and, and well-being and this overall sense of belonging. And everything around meaning revolves around how well-connected mission, vision, values, fairness, standards, how consistent things are. 
all of those all of those elements will provide people with with a clear invitation to belong to the organization or not. Now the challenge is, is that many startups don't see that that these three levels all have to work in in relative harmony. And a lot of founders will want to talk first about meaning and they'll want everyone to trust them and they'll want everyone to feel a sense of belonging. But they don't make some of the clear decisions around, let's say, compensation and benefits, or they don't have clear policies around uh, how you know, employee relations issues, around how people should, should uh, think about their own roles and, and their relationships with their managers. So you can't have one without the other. And this is a very long answer I know, but I think that's really the first, the first step from a strategic people perspective. No, it makes makes sense. I guess I, I was just um, so so just to begin, I was just a little uh, confused of where uh, core ops stops and and the growth starts. So I believe just to clarify, core ops is the delivery of daily necessities, as as you mentioned in a in a company, uh, and then growth is more around the actual hiring, aligning, and and growing people. So I guess yes. to to summarize, that would be the the two bits, the two differences, right? Yes, absolutely. Because you have to have you have to have some core HR capability, even if you're not really growing aggressively. So the the so the, the, the foundation is really is is yes is really around core. But how you grow, how you activate people, and how you expand them, you know, those are two those are two different levels, two different uh, um, functional uh, areas of work as well. Yeah, I quite I quite like what you said about sometimes maybe leaders or founders or senior stakeholders, right? They take more of that meaning oriented approach to to fast growth, right? Where yep. it's more around at least I mean from what I've seen in the news or or in other companies, they take this position of okay, we're gonna do this uh, one hour all hands and they are yep. the charismatic sort of leader. They talk about the growth, the ambitions, the potential, the, you know, very, obviously very exciting, very important things to, to, to help motivate employees. But, but then what about, you know, they, then they let go a little bit of the, the core ops or, 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 or growth areas of, of things as you, yes. as you mentioned. Yeah, people will people will will define their sense of, of meaning and sense of belonging from the ground up. So it has to does have to start from the ground up. A lot of uh, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of and, and the more visionary the entrepreneur, the, the the more lofty the rhetoric is. They'll talk about about meaning as if it's it's as if it's um as if it's a done deal, as if it's just well, of course there's meaning because my vision is so great. And our company is so great and we're the greatest and you know, great, 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 great. And yet the things below that are inconsistent and people will see the disconnect because they'll know that hiring decisions aren't always consistent. They'll know that rewards are somehow a little opaque. They'll know that only certain people are favored and certain people aren't. And this is this is where this is where you have to have obviously the right kinds of of, uh, of processes in place, and then the right kind of of systems and data to demonstrate that the things are in place. But you also have to have a real uh, acceptance of discussing these things and making them visible. And this, I think, is probably where most founders are are just not. 
uh, aware enough, uh, again, of, of their responsibilities of, of being in charge, of the authority and the power they have. And many, many founders, and I've worked with a lot of them over the last 20 odd years, they just don't want to get too close to this stuff because it is difficult and it is deeply personal. And the, 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 kinds of, the kinds of discussions that you have to have around a founder CEO and their growth all relate to what's at the core and their beliefs and, and how mature they are and how willing they are to do the things they need to do in order to, to be worthy of the power that they have. And so growth is hard enough on its own. In, in the best of times, the confusion, the, the improvisation, the chaos, it can lead to a bit of friction and a bit of underperformance and a bit, of, a bit more confusion, but it's relatively benign. The challenge is, is that at its worst, scaling a company means that, that there's so many liberties taken and there, there, there's such a lack of consistency and people get inflated egos and they start believing their own press and they, yes, we're a unicorn and we're doing all these great things. And at its worst, this is how toxic environments really metastasize. And so people who are in charge, leaders have to recognize their responsibility. And at the earliest stages, if they have plans to grow and change and adapt and evolve, they have to recognize that they are the ones who are ultimately accountable for this, not somebody else, not HR, not, not you know, a working group, not a, not a DNI committee or, or some other thing. They as individuals are the ones who have to, who have to carry this weight. Not a lot of entrepreneurs want to do this because it's not really fun work all the time. And again, it can be very, very uh, personally uh, uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I guess we, need, we, we could be a bit fair also to, let's say, founders or, or leaders, because if I, uh, from, from previous companies, if I remember looking at the schedules of these like founders or, or company leaders, I mean, depending on the company, one, one founder I knew we had offices in different countries. So he spent his time traveling to San Fran and then traveling back to here and then traveling to there and then, you know, uh, and doing video calls and attending conferences. And maybe that was their approach, right, to to being a founder. But obviously that's very, very busy and, and you can generate a lot of buzz and you can generate a lot of interest into your company and maybe new investors or anything along those yep. lines. So, that, yeah, I mean, that's that's... I mean, that's, there's high value in that. And I suppose some founders, they might think, look, okay, if I had to, to, um, to invest my time, you know, my limited time, where should I invest it? To be fair, there could be a case for, okay, I'll, I'll just hire maybe a good, good, good head of people or, or something along those lines and delegate everything to them. But I mean, you know, it, it gets a bit complicated because obviously you want to see, as an employee, you know, me just being an employee, I want to see the founder uh, or senior stakeholders that support my function and value yep. uh, my function, right? And if, um, you know, if I were to not have, fortunately, I do have at my current company, but if I didn't have that support as a, as a recruiter, right, then I would feel like, oh, maybe do they, does my company value my role, right? Or am I just being this transactional person at, at the company is kind of what I would start wondering. I, I agree with you, uh, Jose. It's difficult. 
and and there's a lot of work that needs to be done and schedules are tight and, <laughs> yeah. and and my point is i've known many ceos who have who work from from sun up to sundown uh, and and they're very very busy and some of them do it because as you said earlier uh, they want to stick with with the things that they know and they want to be the ones who are delivering certain things um, because they're comfortable doing that. And, and a lot of founders will stay within their comfort zone in terms of their functional expertise. And what the organization needs is for them to step above that. And, and this is where this is where the ultimate the ultimate challenge of scaling is how do you actually help people move move up up the the, the, the chain of control and and how do you how do the most senior leaders and sometimes obviously you hire them from outside but mainly you've really got to grow talent from from existing ranks focusing on hiring managers and core line managers who are closer to the work than the executive team and certainly the CEO so this is about building organizational capability and organizational capacity. And my, my pushback for, for companies, especially companies where HR doesn't report into the CEO is that it's a huge alibi for the CEO to not get involved in these things. And that's a warning flag for me is when, when HR reports into a chief operating officer or a chief financial officer or some other function, it's a way for the CEO to just sidestep some of these issues. Because at the end of the day, as I look at the, the, the long arc of, of growth and of scaling, it isn't about daily activity. It's about how the person with the most power in the organization or in departments or, or in teams, how that individual views their responsibility and the things that are most important versus the things that they might prefer to do or, or be, be good at doing. And ultimately, leadership is about doing the things that benefit everybody else, not the individual leader. And that's why most people, I think, um, most people inherently know that leadership is just a really, really tough paradox. Because the more responsibility you have, the more power, the more authority you have, the less it's about your personal preference. And the more it's about what's best for the greater number of people. And that's a tricky, that's a tricky thing to, uh, to balance. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, well, look, Brian. Just a just the last question um, before wrapping up, um, because I just wanted to see if you had any examples, right? Of let's say, um, and maybe obviously you don't need to mention company names or anything, and and maybe you haven't experienced this, but but maybe you know of companies that have gone through this process, or you can maybe outline maybe a particular strategy to improve a company from this perspective. But mm -hmm. have you ever maybe been in one of those cases, right, where okay? company needs to grow super fast along the way they make mistakes they hire the wrong people or uh, the culture maybe yeah. suffers a little bit the culture turns a bit toxic uh, yep. you see it in the bad glass door reviews and all of a sudden you're in this awkward situation where uh, you don't have the best reputation in the market yep. and rejected offers you're getting struggles here and there with hiring um sort of what what would you um uh you yep. know have you been in those situations or know of a company and and how do you turn things around right if you let's say if you start as a vp of, of people at at this type of company and you're brought in to turn things around like how 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 would you turn things around from that perspective 
Uh, well, from from an NHR practitioner's point of view, the only way to really turn things around is if the character of the CEO is is uh, sufficient enough to actually be the leader of the turnaround, and and especially in 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 companies where where there's reputational damage or or toxicity, it can never be solved from HR alone. The, the CEO has got to stand up and say, "This is the commitment that I'm making to this, and these are the things that we're no longer going to be doing, and these are the things that we are going to be doing." So that's in the most extreme example. I would say that in in general, though. The, the best way to plan for growth and the best way to fix growth problems around specifically around hiring is work and it, work more with hiring managers and invest more in hiring managers. And, and the, the, the most consistent, uh, one of the most consistent problems I've seen with, with early stage companies with managers is that obviously they don't always hire companies, uh, sorry, they don't always hire managers who, who have enough management uh, fundamentals under their belts. So, and here's a, a concrete example. I mean, a lot of companies will say, okay, you've got a team of five right now uh, and you need to go to 10 in the next quarter. So many hiring managers, if they're not experienced, will think of it as a challenge of growing from five to six to seven to eight to nine to 10. They'll think of it serially. And they'll focus on you know, how do I get that next person in and then the next and the next and the next. When if they, if they want to think more strategically about this, they will understand, they'll map out, they'll, they'll, they'll plan or guess, hypothesize what the team of 10 is going to be doing differently and what the capability is going to be that, at 10 that they can't do at five. And they're going to plot a vision of saying, we're five now, we're going to be 10. And here are the differences when we're finished. And they include the existing team of five in the process as early as possible. And they start helping the, the existing team of five think of themselves and work as a team of 10 to, to, to think of themselves as this, this team with an increased capability and increased expertise. And that relieves so much daily pressure of, of the, the, this, this one example of expansion. It relieves the pressure from the hiring manager. It's not solely the hiring manager to deliver. It's a shared problem. It's a shared responsibility. And if you can do that at a department level, let's say with a VP of engineering, if you can do that with a CEO for the whole company, if you can, if you can think of, of this, these kinds of hiring challenges from this, this really from this change perspective, What's going to be the difference when we go from five to 10? What's going to be the difference when we go from 50 to 100? And really try to track those back and involve as many people as possible in the process who are doing the work. It's a much healthier, much more balanced approach to it. And I would take that approach. I mean, I try to take that approach at the beginning of, of, of any situation, regardless of the state of, of the reputation. Sure, sure. So I suppose just in uh, to summarize, and hopefully I'm, I'm summarizing this effectively, but first of all, ideally have involvement from the CEO to, to drive this, this change and not have it be something just delegated to, to someone else. Um, yep. I suppose, secondly, working closely and investing in, in, in hiring managers, you mentioned, and really partnering with them to, to, to hire the people that need to be hired and not the the, the people that you think might need to be, uh, you know, hired in, in a particular company. 
Um, and I suppose finally, just I suppose more, uh, I suppose the third point you could say it's more just clear sort of strategic hiring with with the existing team and having them as closely involved as possible. And and you mentioned a few ways of doing that, but that would sort of maybe be a good sort of first three things you could do, right? Yes, yes. I, I think hiring managers have to see themselves as leading their own change. And so they have to see themselves as going from five to 10 to 30 or whatever the growth trajectory is, but they have to first conceptualize themselves as being the one who is going to manage this. And then they have to expand the management activities and expand how those, those growth problems are going to be solved with more people. And that's the way to then create better clarity and to delegate the work and involve more people in the change. So it's not just the manager delivering each new person to, to the group, because also, oftentimes that's what happens. And that's just not a, that's not a, a sustainable or a healthy way to grow. Absolutely. Perfect, Brian. Well, look, last question for more information about yeah. yourself, uh, Brian, and you know, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, um, and uh, and you can also find me through Astia, uh, A-S-T-I-A dot org. Oh, perfect. We'll do. We'll do. Well, look, Brian. And, and, I, and I tweet, but I, I, I don't. I'm not terribly active on Twitter. I'll, I'll post things that I think are useful and helpful. <laughs> and yeah. and I'm, I'm at B-Evja, E-V-J-E. Yeah, it makes sense. Twitter is one of those weird... I mean, I've considered like trying to grow an audience there, but it's just such a weird non-linear sort of tool to, 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 to meet people. It's Twitter's weird. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I, that's all I can say about it for the time being, but, but yeah, yeah. We'll <laughs> keep that in mind. It was great speaking with Brian. You can find his profile in the episode description. If you like this podcast, then please subscribe or follow. Thanks again and stay safe.